Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Reese Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. When COVID hit in March 2020, the world of work changed forever. People who had previously worked fully in person were suddenly working from home offices and as restrictions lifted, were increasingly exploring the possibility of becoming a digital nomad. My guest today, Lauren Rizavi, has been nomadic since 2013 and is one of the pioneers of nomadic work and global citizenship. She's the VP of Communications at Safety Wing, an organization that aims to be nomads home country on the internet. She is also the author of Global Natives, a book about the past, present, and future of global work. Lauren and I had a fantastic conversation about bringing work into the 21st century, what countries need to be doing to attract global talent, and how the internet has fostered a global community. My name is Lauren Razabi, and I work for a company called Safety Wing. I am VP of Communications there and also the Executive Director of Plumia, which is our global mobility think tank. Uh, the company's mission is to build a global social safety net for digital nomads and remote workers. And what that means in sort of layman's terms is things that you would conventionally access through a nation state like health insurance, income protection and pensions we are building as a global subscription service that allows people to live borderless lives. Uh, I am also author of the book Global Natives uh, about the rise of borderless work and the work from anywhere movement which is available on Kindle and I have a newsletter of the same name. Thanks very much for the introduction. Uh, on your website, you describe yourself as a technologist, a political scientist and a global citizen. What does being a global citizen mean to you? Being a global citizen uh, really means relating more to the culture of the internet than the culture of individual countries. So we've really reached this point in time where the world is more interconnected and borderless than ever before. Personally, I feel like a citizen of planet Earth much more than I feel like a citizen of the UK, which is the passport that I hold. And I think more and more people around the world are beginning to feel like that, especially with the rise of remote work. So I think global citizenship is kind of the uh, the new status quo, or we're at the cutting edge at the moment, but in the future it will become the new status quo of how people sort of relate to their identity. Fantastic. So you're you're saying that you identify more with the with the culture of uh, the internet and you know this kind of global state rather than a nation state. How would you define that? What 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 would you say is the culture or are the things that you identify with more than your nation state where your passport is from the UK, for example? Well, I think the internet has given us all this kind of a shared sense of identity and these kind of cultural moments, if you like, kind of like memes and things that are happening on the internet really kind of come to define memories that we have and interactions that we have. Uh, and I think that's really key in sort of challenging the conventional notion that if you're born in the UK or if you're born in France, 
uh, your kind of primary cultural identity, the way that you navigate the world would be related to, I guess, what British or French citizens have done throughout the generations, like uh, prior to, to you kind of popping up in the, in the 21st century. So I think it's a lot about experience. So I think our working lives and our personal lives are much more connected uh, to the internet than ever before. Um, and for me personally, uh, I've been a digital nomad for the past 10 years. I come from a multicultural kind of global family. My father is a refugee from Iran to the UK. So I very much grew up as part of a diaspora family, sort of visiting family members in different countries, but even within those different countries, sort of experiencing a, a third culture. Uh, because if you go into, you know, an apartment in, uh, in Germany or a house in Connecticut and it's an Iranian household, you're definitely getting a little bit of, uh, of Iran in those experiences. I feel very much uh, connected across borders. You know, my best friends live in Amsterdam and Berlin and spend some of their time on the road as nomads every year. Uh, and my family is kind of spread all over the world. So I really kind of see a borderless reality. Like when I look at my life as a global life, it is a borderless life. Uh, and I think that really informs my kind of identity as a global citizen and my kind of rejection of the nation state as not something that shouldn't exist at all and should disappear tomorrow, but certainly something that has decreasing importance uh, in terms of people's real experiences, real lives, real human connections. And I think so much of that comes down to the internet, the internet being the thing that powers remote work, which is really what powers the digital nomad lifestyle. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting idea. As you say, the um, I guess at least one element of a nation state that you you're a part of is uh, a shared experience, is is commonalities in upbringing and current affairs and you know mental models, worldviews, uh, and you're essentially saying that we, because of the internet, are starting to develop commonalities across boundaries, across nation state borders, much much more, and therefore creating almost this like supranational layer of identity of commonalities of understanding absolutely and maybe something interesting to kind of add on that is that uh, i think you can see the impact of the internet in terms of identity and culture uh, by the fact that you know i have friends in malaysia who i can relate to a lot more easily uh, than i can older generations of british people like we have more in common we're sort of engaging with the same culture and online spaces uh, and I think that really breaks down barriers. I also have a friend who's a Syrian refugee uh, and he he's living in Canada now. He has a Canadian passport. But I was very struck when he and I met uh, back in, I guess it would have been 2018 in Istanbul, that like there is so little dividing people from different countries in terms of their experiences. I remember the first time he and I ever met up in a tea house um, talking to him about what he was watching on Netflix. Uh, and finding that we both liked House of Cards. And it's these kind of small moments that I experience all the time, given the life that I lead, working as part of a big international team, where you just realize that, uh, that we have so much more in common, uh, that we're really like more similar than we think, even if uh, the nation states around us are kind of giving us different boundaries and challenges and restrictions. One of the things that struck me when, when you were first uh, introducing yourself is the scope or the ambition of uh, mission that you just mentioned so if you were to distill down your I guess overarching career mission into you know an elevator pitch into something short how, how would that go 
my personal mission is really around um, unlocking borderless lifestyles and global mobility for as many people as possible. Like, I'd like to live in a world where there is an equality of opportunity between people wherever they were born. And all of the work that I do, both at, sort of at Safety Wing, at Plumia, but also uh, through the writing, through books, uh, through my newsletter, is really to, to that end. Um, I think a more conventional or traditional way of understanding it is probably to, to just say open borders. Um, but as somebody who's dealing a lot with governments and sort of looking at different stakeholders who are involved in the possibility of bringing about a more borderless world, uh, I find that like this term open borders uh, gets people's backs up. It's not kind of the right starting point for, uh, for your elevator pitch. So yeah, I think if you break it down, it's really about that equality of opportunity across borders, which the internet should deliver, but really we have these systems, uh, these kind of national systems that hold back the potential of the internet as sort of the, its potential to um, to level the global playing fields. Uh, and that's really what I want to do through my work. I love that. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking there, as you say, this idea of borderless world, um, I think, I don't know, maybe maybe threatens people or scares people a little bit uh, when, when you, you mention this kind of idea because it clashes so much with the, the mental models that we hold. But the thing I was, I guess I was thinking about is that if we were to look back through time, there has been a, a, a trend or a progression towards this, right? Do you think that progression is inevitable? Do you think we'll actually get to the point where due to, you know, the sharing of information, um, we will get to a world where it is just a one global community. It will be a, a, a planetary nation state or a planetary state rather than a nation state. Yeah, I definitely think we're going in this direction of um, global citizenship or kind of like identifying ourselves as planet Earth uh, more than as uh, sort of citizens of different countries. I think it's inevitable that the world is becoming more borderless. I think that's the potential that the internet has unlocked in the world. We've seen it happen in finance and retail and kind of all of these industries uh, over the past sort of 30 to 40 years. But I also think it's really important and it counts for a lot uh, that there are people like me working to accelerate that progress. Um, because even if uh, you believe it's inevitable, it matters whether it's inevitable within the next few decades or the next few centuries. And I think that's the opportunity that we have today. We need to rebuild the systems that are governing people's lives to kind of prepare for this next iteration of the human species, which I definitely see as going in that direction of multi-planetary and therefore at like the planet Earth level needing to be more kind of a unified sort of operating as a, as a globe instead of as individual countries. Um, whereas I think we should be solving problems and seeking solutions that are truly like solving a problem, not just kind of... Uh, passing it on to another country. I think there are many kind of small examples like that of the the national not really getting the job done. And that's really the challenge of our generation, what we need to overcome. So maybe one more question on this. You you mentioned that you you're regularly talking with with governments and, and, and representatives of, of government. How do they view these things? There's been a lot of buzz or there's been a lot of media attention around uh, digital nomad visas and, and these sorts of things. Um, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg of, of what we're talking about right now. And the conversations you've been having with, with these sorts of people, are they, are they viewing this as uh, a threat? Are they viewing this as um, something exciting and positive? What, what's the opinion and, and where are things going? 
Ah, so but maybe to give a little bit of context uh, about the work that I do with governments, um, essentially Safety Wing is the biggest nomad serving company in the world. So um, we're a YC alumni company. We've raised $50 million so far. And we are really kind of trying to facilitate the, the nomad lifestyle in any way that we can. It starts with the global social safety net, but part of the purpose of our think tank, Plumia, that I run, is to explore global mobility as an area. So our kind of 10-year mission by 2030 is to launch a new global passport that's available to anybody born anywhere in the world. Um, but the kind of nearer term version of that, the kind of step one, is to develop a multi-country visa for digital nomads. So the collaboration that I'm doing with governments is really around uh, helping them understand who nomads are, what they want, and what kind of needs to happen for them to start giving nomads a status and for them to kind of like gather data to actually understand how nomads are distinct from tourists or tourists or from expats um, and other types of person who might be using passports or residency tools, et cetera, et cetera. We find that governments are very, very receptive to this kind of expertise for our ability to be able to kind of give them user insights to understand more and more and kind of shape policy in directions that can create triple wins. So that's one of the goals and the work that I do with governments is to think through how we can make sure that nomads, host communities and governments themselves, those three groups are all benefiting from a, a world of increased global mobility. Part of our mission, you know, goes beyond the passport. Um, at Safety Wing, we really like uh, see the end goal of the work that we're doing as building a country on the internet. So having a structure that can essentially provide the same value to citizens as a nation state does today, but at the global level rather than at the national level. But we are very, very uh, intentional about how we go about that mission. We really want to collaborate with governments. We see what we're doing now as essentially building diplomatic relations with existing nation states so that there is a higher chance of our passport being accepted later and so that we can take on some of the functionality of a country, things like taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But this is very much infrastructure work. You know, we're talking, uh, talking five to 10 year span, not kind of one to two year span for a lot of the goals that we have as a company. But I've been very surprised by the sort of uptake of ideas, the uptake of solutions, the kind of acceptance from governments that perhaps they aren't that great at the technology side of things and they could do with some kind of outside assistance some collaboration to move things forward. But I think it's also very easy to look at governments and think of them as some other thing, like as if they, they kind of like function on a completely different um, wiring system or frequency than the rest of us. But at the end of the day, people who work in government um, probably have the same goals as, as you and I do, Reese. Like they want to make the world better. They want to make society better. And I always try and remind myself going into a conversation uh, that the person I'm speaking to is another human. And if they sort of understand and engage with what we're doing at a values level, uh, they want to be part of that mission. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoy the most about working on these issues at this time is that like it goes beyond like, I'm a company trying to achieve X and it goes into what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want to build together? Love it. So you published your book, Global Natives, earlier this year. What inspired you to write the book? And was there anything that surprised you over the course of uh, writing it and the research that you did? 
Yeah, so Global Natives came about uh, when I left a job in big tech at the end of 2019. I decided I was going to take at least a year out and tackle a book. Uh, I had a past life, a past career as a journalist, and I knew I always wanted to do books. And it felt like the kind of right time to do that. Um, and when I started, I was really just thinking I wanted to write something uh, in the world of remote work and digital nomads because I was an early adopter of both. And I felt like I had something to say. I'd first been approached, I think it was in 2018, uh, by a publisher to write a book that was essentially how to be a digital nomad. And I had a very strong reaction to that. Like, that's not what I want to do a book about. I don't want to tell people how to be a nomad. But of course, when you reject something, you sort of end up thinking, what is it that I do want to write? Like, what do I have to say about this? So I decided to take the time out and start writing in that area. Three months into that process, March 2020, a little something happened in the world and suddenly everyone was very, very interested and engaged with remote work and digital nomads in ways that were quite unanticipated when I started the project. And I think it was kind of around then that I really got the clarity on what it is that I wanted to, to do. And essentially it was to kind of track the rise of digital nomads to kind of uh, record some of the early kind of history of the subculture that I kind of lived through and other people like Peter Levels who made nomadlist.com and Steph Smith um, who's now at A16Z but was previously uh, a kind of indie maker. I think her site is stephsmith.io. Me and, and those guys, you know, we were we were the really weird kids who just ran off and tried this nomad thing way back in like 2013, 2014. And it felt like something of that time should kind of be documented. So the book became really about that, uh, kind of tracking the rise of borderless work and work from anywhere and identifying some of kind of the problems and the opportunities ahead. That really kind of got me very engaged in this global mobility space of, of thinking about how can we make changes here? How can we how can we essentially rebuild the systems that are governing the world? How can we sort of challenge conventional notions of borders? Fantastic. That's great to get that background. Uh, in, in the book, you mention as governments seek to attract and retain talent, they're beginning to act like startups. You've also mentioned in some other pieces that you've written that countries are in a global battle for talent. Can you talk a little bit about this correlation between governments acting like startups and the rise of countries offering digital nomad visas, grants, and other incentives to attract global knowledge workers? Yes, absolutely. So this is a very, very juicy area. Um, if we start with um, uh, this kind of comparison between countries and startups, um, Startups, at least in the technology world, for many years now have taken a very kind of strategic approach to talent. Uh, they need to be able to get top tech talent, top knowledge workers from anywhere in the world to be able to, to kind of work for their company. So that means that you have uh, a lot of people working in a lot of these technology companies to really attract uh, specific kinds of people and to make sure that they have kind of an ongoing flow of talent coming in. And what we've seen really since COVID, since the first digital nomad visa um, launched in, uh, in June 2020, is countries starting to take a similar approach to talent. So the idea of attracting global knowledge workers uh, has become very, very attractive. And lots of, of countries now are launching things like nomad visas, tax breaks, and even in some places, cash grants to actually attract people in. 
Um, and the kind of rationale is, is multifold. So one thing is tax revenues. If you can attract global knowledge workers who have the ability to remote work, to come and live in your country, that means that you can collect tax revenues from them. And that is like a new tax base or an increased tax base uh, for, for your country. So that's one motivation. Uh, another motivation is that fundamentally many countries around the world would like to be home to the, the next Silicon Valley. Countries are wanting to develop their business, innovation and startup ecosystems. And they're beginning to recognize that, whereas perhaps in the past they would try to attract, you know, an, an Amazon headquarters or the new Google office to their shores, actually uh, moving people, getting people in uh, can be very, very high impact. So on the ground, you have uh, knowledge workers who come in, taking out uh, co-working spaces, going to networking events, beginning to kind of sort of interact and engage with uh, local entrepreneurs, local companies. Um, and this can have a really big sort of uplift effect. So that is something that um, a lot of governments are very, very engaged with uh, and wanting to kind of make progress on. And if you can attract digital nomads, some of them will come only for a temporary period. Some will come and kind of make your country their home. Uh, this is a very interesting kind of approach to, to try and achieve some of those, uh, those outcomes that are really about building ecosystems and creating new opportunities and perhaps new, uh, new jobs locally as well. And there's also the kind of local economic spend. So if a digital nomad uh, is somewhere for like, let's say one month, three months, six months, um, for that period of time, they're going to be spending on their day-to-day -day needs, things like accommodation, transport, food and drink, leisure activities, gyms, all of this kind of thing. And there is a really big benefit in the same way as there can be a benefit when tourists come uh, to nomads coming and essentially creating the demand for an apartment hotel, for a new coffee shop, for a co-working space. Um, the estimate, I believe it comes from the government of Madeira in uh, Portugal, is uh, $2,100 per month is a nomad's average spend. Um, so that can make a huge difference if you can get a, a big group of nomads kind of coming into a place. Lauren brings a huge amount of expertise to this subject, and it was fantastic to speak to her about nomad visas, her work at Safety Wing to build diplomatic relationships, and living a borderless lifestyle. I myself have had some of these experiences in my role at Oyster, and I agree with her that working from anywhere is the future of work. I wanted to ask about what PeopleOps leaders can do to foster a work from anywhere environment, and what she thinks about companies bringing people back into the office, and her favorite places she's visited and worked. So talking about small countries, you know, I wanted to, 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 to ask you about countries trying to attract top talent. I also want to talk about the opposite. So for the countries that are looking at the large incumbents, if we're to still use the business sort of wording, the US, European countries, these sorts of places, as you say, they're very open and receptive to these uh, kinds of conversations. What kind of conversations have you had with the, with the countries that are actually at risk of losing this talent? So the ones that they have already been residing there and then people are all of a sudden saying, wait a minute, don't really need to live in this country. There might be somewhere else I can go with a better quality of life and uh, all these other benefits to, to somewhere else that they wouldn't have thought of five or 10 years ago. Yeah, what, what are the conversations been like with some of these larger quote-unquote incumbent countries? I think a lot of the incumbent countries are quite complacent still. 
they don't see population loss as a big risk. I think the majority of those kind of incumbent countries, if we're talking about, you know, the UK, the US, etc., there's a really big problem with aging populations. This is not being addressed particularly well, in my view, by uh, governments at the moment. They're quite slow to uh, to kind of come up with a strategy and kind of uh, get things going so that they're prepared for the future. Most of those kind of conversations are just kind of tinged with not really seeing like what could happen without action. That said, I also think the global mobility space in general is really interesting because um, you know, you've probably heard something about the kind of pushback against nomads, which is kind of misplaced because it's kind of more over tourism than it is uh, nomads specifically. But nonetheless, there's been some pushback against nomads, uh, at least the idea of them in uh, Mexico City uh, in Mexico and in Lisbon in Portugal. And I think one of the one of the interesting things about that is it's uh, global mobility is not stagnant. People are not kind of moving to one place and then uh, staying there forever. Because people are moving around all the time, uh, these kind of hotspots and these hubs really do change and shift. So, you know, right now it's Lisbon and it's Mexico City. I have no doubt that if we talk again in two years' time, it's going to be a couple of other places that have become a little bit too popular, a little bit too oversaturated. So I think the kind of likely outcome when you think about these incumbent countries is If they don't act, they probably will suffer population loss. People will leave because of the high taxes, because of a lack of public kind of infrastructure, because of a lack of flexibility in terms of citizenship or residency terms. But then there will be an opportunity for them to kind of claw people back or attract new people. Uh, And I think that's one of the opportunities for governments is really not just thinking about it's, you know, it's a challenge under the kind of electoral systems that we have, but to not just be thinking about the next four or five years, but actually be thinking on a 10, 15, 20 year horizon about the, the different ways in which you can kind of engage in this area, the different kinds of people that you'd want to attract within a country, the different kinds of destinations you might like to, to kind of create. I agree completely. Okay, so changing tact slightly, I want to talk about companies and how they deal with this. So if we think about the company, the the typical tech company, a few years ago, they would never have really expected that remote work would become such a, a major deciding factor in whether an employee might join your company or not. Now, it's almost a prerequisite, at least for hybrid work. And who knows, maybe in five to 10 years time, the sort of timescales you're talking about, we might get to the point where they are also expected to accommodate global citizens like you mentioned so thinking about the the person that that's listening to this podcast right now when it comes to the the people teams of these kinds of companies what sort of advice would you give them to help them manage an increasingly global and remote workforce the best starting point for most companies if they don't already have one is actually to devise a work from anywhere policy that essentially involves uh, sort of looking at what's happening within a company and its teams at the moment and starting to actually sort of put pen to paper in terms of what the company policy on these various aspects of work from anywhere sort of are, what they can be. And so if you are a fully remote company or a hybrid company, you probably already have some people, whether it's because they're full-time nomads or because they're sort of expats who are spending some time overseas in different circumstances. And so I think the the kind of first step is always to kind of like see what's happening in reality, speak to people. I think co-creation of company policies is pretty much always the right approach, i.e. speak to your people, 
do surveys, do polls, et cetera, to, to try and understand like how people are feeling and then to craft kind of guidelines like policy. Here's how we handle X, Y, and Z. I think there are more opportunities now than ever to really kind of like shape the conditions for a global workforce and for a very flexible workforce. So I guess what was what was going through my head while while we were talking there is that you're at the bleeding edge of all of this. You're having these conversations with governments. You're seeing the way that they are reacting. You're seeing the things that they are thinking about into the future. We also then see, I guess you could say, the early adopters of of this in terms of employees as well. I think even though there's been you know seismic shifts in in the way things uh, work in companies, what's in my mind right now is the people leader that is listening to this podcast right now, they are very much thinking about the the day-to-day fires that are going on in their company and making sure that things are, are running well. And they're trying their best to get ahead. They're trying their best to plan for the future. You mentioned this idea of talent strategy. What sort of advice would you give to a people leader that is going okay, well, I'm listening to this podcast right now. We got caught flat-footed a couple of years ago with the pandemic. Everyone went remote. We had to scramble to, to, to make it work. That's started an irreversible process or progress to where we are going right now. And I need to make my executive team understand this. They need to see what is coming down the line for their business so that we can deal with it proactively, so that we can deal with it strategically, and we can ideally profit from this we can be better than the than our competitors and then win this war for talent uh, and be the type of employer that will be the most desirable and not just this year or next year but in five years time or 10 years time what, what would you say to that people leader that's listening to this and is trying to craft that kind of vision and communicate that to to the other people that, that lead the company I think the one of the most important things for people leaders um, trying to, to kind of define the forward strategy and get kind of the, the stakeholder buy-in that is needed to make real progress um, is to develop like an overarching vision of what kind of company you want to be. And if it's a company that's attracting the best talent, but also I think attracting and retaining talent can kind of be two separate things in important ways, but you want to like attract the best talent and retain them. And that really means like going beyond the basics and the essentials. Like a lot of uh, fully remote companies are, for example, um, going beyond like national regulations in terms of like the employee benefits that they offer. Uh, And by that, I mean, uh, for companies right now, I think it's so much about um, talent strategy as brands you have to really kind of understand what it is that you want to be doing, how you want to be kind of taste making or or thought leading in your particular field, in your industry, in this kind of area. So at Safety Wing, a lot of our uh, our customers for our borderless health insurance product are companies giving the product to all of their employees. And a lot of the time, it's not a legal requirement in every one of those jurisdictions to actually provide health insurance. But companies are beginning to take a step back and say, okay, well, screw the regulatory requirements. Like, what does it look like to actually treat our people well? Like, as a company, what do we want to provide to people? What do we feel like is the kind of minimum standard quality of life? And and what is it up to a company to be providing? Uh, And I think that's really, really key. It's really about uh, developing a vision, both with teams, but also with leaders, to, to say, you know, like, 
talent strategy, HR, whatever you want to call it, shouldn't be kind of like the thing shoved into the corner and somebody's doing something functional to deal with it. Actually, this is about brand. This is about thought leadership. This is about kind of the values that we're putting out into the world. And if we want to be ahead of our competitors, if we want to attract and retain the best talent, we really have to to kind of do something um, beyond what's expected, beyond the, the basic requirements. Um, I think in a very pragmatic sense, if I were a people leader looking to get internal buy-in, I would be uh, looking at, you know, five other companies in the space, looking at what they offer, and then coming up with a proposal of what we should be offering uh, that goes beyond what they are offering. But not like goes beyond, like if you add up the the value of everything offered, an employee benefits package, it's, you know, higher at our company than that company. Uh, I think it's really about like the the values that you're portraying and in what you offer so within our company for example we have the borderless health insurance we have like personal development budgets we have uh you can buy a virtual or in-person meal with a colleague uh once a month on your company card um we have budgets available every year to we're like a fully remote company but to go and travel to work with colleagues in other locations all of these kinds of things are like very intentional, like conscious decisions about the kind of environment that we want to operate in and how we can kind of practice what we preach. You know, what are we here to do as a company? And then how can we make sure that we're facilitating as much of that as possible? And on a much lighter level, like, for example, we're allowed to expense plants on our company cards because it's, you know, plants are good for well-being and it's also nice. The only thing is you have to post a picture in one of our Slack channels of you and your new plants. And I think all of these kinds of things, you know, each one of them seems small on its own. You know, nobody's going to make a job decision based on, well, this company is going to give me 30 bucks a month to spend on, you know, a virtual or in-person meal with a teammate. But actually, if you look at a whole list of uh, of those kind of benefits, like employee benefits, it really paints you a picture of the company and its culture. And I think talent strategy is really around defining um, or successful talent strategy is really around defining your company culture uh, and then thinking about how how that relates to people, uh, like keeping hold of people, but also attracting new people. No, thank you very much. I think it's important for us to also acknowledge that even though there is such progress that's happening around global mobility, about digital nomad visas, um, about countries starting to realize the opportunity uh, at the same time let's be honest there's a lot of people a lot of companies that are, are bringing people back into the office what do you think about these I guess this contradictory behavior between some companies versus other companies as somebody who has operated for the last 10 years at the cutting edge and continues to operate at the cutting edge now I find it very difficult to take seriously um, companies or, or cultures that are kind of taking a, a step back on these issues. Um, I see it very much as a temporary blip, you know, a kind of last gasp from uh, from the old guard, from the status quo, to try and keep things the same. But I think realistically, it's not just about remote work. Like the location part is often over overemphasized. It's really about flexibility. Once Pandora's box has been opened, once people realize that it's possible to do incredibly like productive work but with flexibility and without going into an office every day it's only a matter of time before um companies that are still requiring people to go into the office that are not embracing that kind of flexibility are losing all of their talent and they either have to adjust their strategy or they actually die out completely 
I think it's really interesting if you look at the majority of startups being founded right now, almost all tech startups that are being founded are being founded on a remote basis, like an all remote company these days. And, you know, that's to do with cost savings. It's possible if you only have so much runway uh, from your VC funding, uh, it's much better to to make that stretch further, which often means um, remote is better. But if you just think about that on a kind of more macro level, it's like, well, if all the new startups that are coming up are being founded as remote companies, it is only so long that a company that is taking on this huge burden of, of real estate on its balance sheet is actually going to be able to um, maintain itself against the competition. I agree. So you have lived and worked in 50 countries around the world. Uh, which country or which location in a particular country has had the greatest impact on you and why? Uh, I have to I have to give two. Um, my two kind of favorite places in the world that I've spent the most time uh, and that sort of continue to inspire me and I feel like kind of get something more from than everywhere else are Amsterdam in the Netherlands, one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, it truly feels like everybody there is innovating. I literally had coffee with a friend in a co-working space and a guy like tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'm so sorry, I overheard your conversation. I'm head of blockchain at IBM. Here's my card. Come in for lunch sometime. And uh, I mean, that probably happens a lot in Silicon Valley too, but uh, Amsterdam's a bit more uh, high quality of life in my view uh, than Silicon Valley. So I love that kind of innovator energy the urban design, um, sort of like Dutch design and style in general, the the general kind of high quality of life in, in Amsterdam. And um, I love Amsterdam as like a kind of expat and immigrant city. People are always coming and going. A lot of my friends there are not Dutch. They're from all over the world. Uh, and the other is Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, um, one of my favorite locations in the world. I've been going there since I think 2014. Um, so I've had a really kind of long-term relationship with the place. Um, they Malaysia has recently launched a digital nomad visa and I, I plan to to take one later this year when I return there. And I just love Malaysia as this kind of um very, very multicultural, kind of chaotic country. You know, you have uh, a lot of different cultures there, kind of Chinese cultures, um, sort of ethnic Malay cultures, Indian cultures, a lot of expats. Um, you have kind of British colonial history in the area. And it just makes for this real kind of like melting pot environment in Kuala Lumpur. Big plus one in Malaysia. It's a, it's a fantastic country that I think a lot of people don't know enough about. So, uh, yeah, final question that we ask everyone that comes on New World of Work. What is the best mistake you've ever made and why? I think the, the best mistake I've ever made was probably trying to, uh, to, to pursue a career in journalism. So... Uh, not really my first career, but my first career out of university was uh, was as a journalist. Um, I was a travel writer, then a foreign reporter, and did a lot on culture, business, and technology um, for a lot of the big kind of UK and US media titles. I think I was a journalist like full time for maybe four or five years, but uh, this was a mistake because uh, I had to work so hard to be just above average in terms of how good I was at that job. And I didn't really realize at the time because this was, you know, my early mid 20s, but I just wasn't very good at it. Uh, and so I worked incredibly, incredibly hard uh, to, to try and achieve X, Y and Z. Um, never really saw it as as much of a, a struggle as perhaps now I look back on it uh, as. 
But uh, I think it's really interesting to kind of like uh, push yourself in a direction. You kind of like the idea of a career, but not the reality of it. I think it's the best mistake I ever made because uh, I think a journalist skill set is incredibly, incredibly useful across all walks of life, like personally and professionally. There's kind of curiosity, being able to ask good questions, being able to kind of have a very strong bullshit detector. This kind of thing has served me really, really well. I have also found since uh, since working in tech uh, and, and sort of doing different types of work uh, since that career in journalism, there are a lot of things that come a lot more easily to me. But I think I never would have uh, realized that if I hadn't have kind of had, the, I suppose, this uh, 20-something struggle of trying to make my way in a career that perhaps didn't match my, uh, my own abilities uh, or my own energies quite so well. So yeah, I think that's probably my best mistake. Very grateful for it. I really enjoyed speaking with Lauren and hearing about the digital nomad lifestyle. I hope this episode inspired you to think about the work from anywhere possibilities for yourself and your team. Here are my key takeaways from this episode. The internet has created a global culture. Lauren says that she feels she has more in common with people her own age in Malaysia than the older generations from the UK. The internet has created shared experiences and culture that have brought younger generations together. Countries need to attract talent. Lauren believes that countries that are making efforts to attract talent and digital nomads are setting themselves up for success. Countries that isolate will suffer long term. Work needs to be brought into the 21st century. Lauren believes that the current trend of bringing employees back to the office is a relic of the past. Creating work from anywhere policies will attract and retain employees and bring businesses into the future. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.